This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. To the University of California, San Diego, Japan Forum for Innovation and Technology. Uh, we are here today to uh, discuss the economy. Uh, before we do that, let me just give you bit of information about uh, where we are, who we are, and why we're here. Um, you are at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. We offer seven degree programs, including a Master's of International Affairs with a Japan specialization. We also have a Japan Center called JFIT, the Japan Forum for Innovation and Technology, uh, which was set up several years ago in an effort to connect San Diego and Japan and create a forum for exchange on things Japan. Uh, you can get information about uh, these places at gps.ucsd.edu and jfit.ucsd.edu. Uh, our Japan Forum has a weekly webinar series, and uh, in the off chance that I uh, don't have a chance to announce this later, uh, coming up next week, uh, we will talk about innovation and entrepreneurship, followed by a discussion that I will have with Steph Haggard from our faculty on business reinvention. We'll then talk about trade, religion, culture, and many more to come. Uh, join us on Tuesday afternoons at 4.30, uh, which is 8.30 Wednesday mornings, Tokyo time. Uh, let me just uh, go then to today's agenda. Uh, I have two wonderful guests today, Professors uh, Robert Feldman and Takeo Hoshi, and um, I will introduce them uh, now uh, momentarily. Let me just uh, uh, give you a little bit of background of what's going on in Japan. So here's a slide that shows the development of uh, the COVID situation uh, in Japan. Uh, the red are the um, uh, current cases, uh, people that are affected, blue are people that have recovered, and yellow are the people uh, that have passed away uh, due to the virus. Uh, as you can see, the numbers are very small, uh, which is an interesting question in and of itself compared to, uh, say, the United States. Uh, Japan's experience here was uh, briefly that the first case happened uh, in late January. Uh, then there was a, a self-restraint, sort of a modified lockdown that uh, uh, came into effect uh, late in late February. The government took several measures, uh, changed the special emergency law. Uh, in late March, the governor of Tokyo, uh, Koike, uh, sorry, the mayor of Tokyo, Koike, announced that please everybody should stay home. And uh, this sort of more severe jishuku, self-restrained, stay at home um, uh, advisory is uh, in, still uh, there today in the large metropolitan areas and has recently been lifted uh, in the countryside. So there are a number of questions here. Um, uh, for instance, uh, regarding the economy, what will this mean? Japan is a very export, heavily export dependent uh, economy with global supply chains, um, uh, interactions that are now on hold. Uh, the news yesterday was that technically Japan is in a recession. Uh, how should we assess these news? The, certainly the very massive relief, the massive relief package of 20% of GDP um, will further increase non-performing debt and, and possibly non-performing loans. And yet, um, all of Japan's core data look comparatively strong, whether that's employment, um, corporate cash holdings, uh, and other matters like that. Uh, so today, here with me are um, uh, my two colleagues uh, uh, from Tokyo. Uh, professor Robert Feldman, who is a professor at the Tokyo University of Science and the senior advisor uh, to Morgan Stanley MUFJ Japan. For the last 30 years, Robbie has been the best known and, and most prominent chief economist uh, in Tokyo and the large uh, investment banks. And uh, he has informed our thinking of Japan in many, many different ways. 
uh, and continues to do so. He has a book coming out on the future of the economy uh, in Japanese, it is. It's uh, soon to be there, and uh, Robbie will tell us all about it. Uh, I will uh, invite, invite him to talk first, and then he will be followed by Professor Takeo Hoshi, who uh, many of uh, uh, you know very well because uh, Takeo was a professor uh, at GPS here at UC San Diego from 1988 until 2012. He just reminded me that uh, he left his uh, GPS office, which was right next to mine, uh, in December 2012, when the Abe administration uh, launched. Uh, he, uh, Takeo has since uh, left Stanford and is now a professor uh, of economics at the University of Tokyo. Uh, he has a new book out called The Japanese Economy, which is the title of our, our conversation today. So thank you both for joining me. It's terrific to have you here. And so Robbie, could I ask you to uh, begin uh, uh, your presentation and then uh, we'll, we'll invite Takeo to follow. Thank you very much, Ulrika. Uh, it's a great pleasure and a great honor to be here today. Uh, and uh, I hope the uh, short comments that I have uh, might help uh, inform our, our discussion. Uh, if I may, let me uh, share a screen here uh, and uh, get started on um, uh, our discussion. Um, so what I want to talk about today is the disease, the economy, and the future. So let me start out a bit uh, more on the disease. Ulrika just gave us a very nice um, um, uh, uh, slide with uh, data on uh, the disease in Japan. Uh, let me augment that just a touch with some uh, data on uh, various countries around the world. Um, these data come from the Johns Hopkins um, uh, site, the, J the, the one down at the bottom here. Um, basically what these data are showing uh, across countries is that Japan has done quite well relative to other countries. Uh, for example, compare Japan and Sweden. Sweden has about 10 million people uh, in the population. Japan has 127 million. Uh, and yet, uh, the number of confirmed cases in Sweden is double the number in Japan. Now, there may be some uh, issues about how Japan measures cases, uh, but still it's a, it's a pretty good performance. I would point out here that even though uh, Japan may be underestimating uh, cases basically due to the way things are counted, et cetera, even if, you, if Japan had 10 times the number of cases, uh, relative to um, uh, what's uh, out there. It would still be lower in terms of cases as a percent of the population than other industrial countries. Uh, so in that sense, Japan has done uh, quite well. Uh, same is true in terms of this. So Japan has done quite well. Um, you look at the curve on cases in Japan and it is definitely flattening out here. Just a little a technical note, I put uh, the scale here in terms of uh, a base two. So each uh, line in the graph, uh, the next line up uh, implies a quadrupling of the numbers. But the point here is that the slope of the line tells you how fast things are growing. Uh, and Japan's line right here, as you can see, uh, has flattened out a great deal. Um, that's the same is true with this. So Japan has actually done pretty well. Um, how do we explain this? This is a, 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 a another very interesting and difficult question. But the framework I'd like to use comes from a biomathematician uh, uh, who works uh, in uh, London. He's at um, uh, one of the London uh, schools. I think it's the School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, some uh, a place like that. Very, very, very good book. He's put out called The Rules of Contagion. Uh, Adam Kucharski is, is his name. It's a very easy to understand model. And he focuses on this number R0 or are not, as they say, um, the number of uh, uh, people that an infected person subsequently infects. Uh, we're all becoming much more familiar with this now. Uh, if R0 is above one, then each infected uh, person brings more than one other infection uh, and uh, the uh, disease grows uh, quickly. If R0 is less than one, then the disease will peter out over time. Now, what uh, Professor Kucharski has done here is break down R0 into four elements or four determinants uh, that help us understand whether we're doing a good job or not. Uh, he calls this the DOTS model for D-O-T-S. D is the number of days that an infected person is infectious to other people. In the case of this disease, the assumption is it's 14 days. Not much the policy can do about that. However, on OTS, it's a different story. O is the number of people 
that an infected person meets per day. Okay? Uh, so if everybody's out riding the subway and you're an asymptomatic carrier, you're going to meet a lot of people, that's probably not a good thing. So one thing uh, in uh, one way to reduce R0 is to reduce that uh, number O, the number of people an infected person meets every day, okay? uh, quarantines, etc. T, uh, this is the probability that an infected person transmits the disease. Now, each infected person will not transmit the disease to everybody uh, they meet. Uh, there's a sneeze factor. If you're standing next to someone who's got the disease on a train and they sneeze on you, uh, then uh, there's a problem. Uh, but not everybody in the train car is going to be exposed to that. So this T is a probability uh, that the infected person transmits the disease. And then finally, uh, there's the recipient side. This is a probability that the disease actually makes the recipient sick. So for example, if the sick per person on the train sneezes on you, but you uh, are immune, uh, then uh, there's not a problem. So that's the, the S part. Now the question here uh, in terms of analyzing Japan is what has Japan done in terms of lowering uh, the O, T, and S numbers? And there's a lot of good news uh, on that. In terms of uh, the O part, uh, I think that uh, uh, Governor uh, Koika's actions, uh, partly also prior to that, uh, Prime Minister Abe with his school closed down, but then after the that the national emergency, that actually had a major effect on uh, lowering uh, the O, the opportunities the number of people uh, met. Um, uh, in addition, uh, the Japanese people are cooperative. Uh, we don't have uh, demonstrations in the street here blocking hospitals because people want to move around. Um, so the uh, innate cooperation of Japanese cultures actually helped lower the O as well. On uh, T, the transmission um, uh, probability, uh, there we've got uh, pretty good hospitals. We've got uh, a good uh, allocation of hospital beds. Uh, there's triage and who gets into the hospitals, who doesn't, which I think has actually been uh, an important factor. And finally, on the S, on the susceptibility. Um, the um, uh, things like immunization, although there ha that has not happened yet because there's no uh, vaccine yet, uh, but uh, basically hygiene, hygiene habits are also quite, quite important. People wash their hands, people gargle, uh, people bow instead of uh, shaking hands. There's some cultural aspects to this, but Japan uh, for both cultural and personal uh, hygiene reasons, has a pretty low uh, level of S. So those are the reasons I would say that Japan has done you know, better uh, than uh, some other countries. So now let me move on a little bit uh, to the economy. Um, this is the uh, Morgan Stanley outlook for the global economy. Um, uh, and it's a very simple chart that compares where we expect uh, the global uh, uh, GDP of the G10, uh, the overall GDP uh, of the G10 countries put together, to move over the next uh, couple of years. And we're comparing that here uh, to the global financial crisis of 2008. Okay? Uh, the GFC in the orange or the yellow, I guess, line here took a long time. It, it was deep, but it wasn't nearly as deep as this. Okay? That said, uh, this time uh, we are probably gonna get back to the pre-COVID level of GDP. Uh, quicker than we did uh, in 2008 crisis, but still that is at the end of next year. So that's a pretty long uh, time frame on this. Yes, we are expecting something like a V-shaped recovery over the next quarter or two. Uh, even in the US, we're seeing um, uh, some uh, reopenings that's happening in Japan as well. Uh, but the point there is not the bounce back, it's the pace after the bounce back. And even that we see as relatively uh, weak. For Japan, if you draw the same graph for Japan, our current forecast actually has uh, Japan recovering the pre-COVID level of GDP only in 2022. Uh, as uh, Ulrika mentioned before, we do have a, an economy that's much more export oriented. Uh, and so any disruptions in the global economy, more trade disruptions as may happen uh, in US-China events right now could also be a disruptive factor there. How is Japan doing? Well, I've just got some, some data here. Uh, ridership in the uh, Tokyo Toei subways uh, is down some 70%, and I can uh, 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 vouch for that. As I sometimes have to go out for little things and ride around a bit, the trains are very empty. Even the Yamanote line is very empty. Uh, machine tool orders, uh, they're still down about uh, 40%. Um, it's not getting any worse, but down 40% year on year is a pretty hefty decline. 
Okay. Another thing important, there has been some easing of the uh, national emergency. Um, I think 39 prefectures now have had the national emergency lifted. A couple others are seem to be on the way, but nevertheless, we still have about 50% of GDP in those eight prefectures where the, the national emergency is still in effect. Uh, and so uh, it's been uh, a little bit slow in terms of moving uh, back toward uh, a lifting of the, of the national emergency. Um, so that's, I think, an important way to do it. You don't look at the number of prefectures, you look at the share of GDP in each of those uh, prefectures. Uh, Tokyo will have to come down uh, to about a total of 70 cases per week uh, in order to meet one of the criteria uh, for lifting that national emergency order, uh, and we're uh, not quite there yet. Okay? We're at about 139 compared to the goal of about 70. Okay? Uh, in early April, I went in and talked uh, to a small uh, committee at the LDP about what to do. Uh, and I would give the uh, subsequent actions of the government sort of um, call it a, a, a B. Um, they've done okay on uh, a number of the, uh, the uh, items, and uh, uh, particularly the big fiscal support, uh, the um, stay-at-home orders, things like that. Testing has not been successful uh, really at all in terms of ramping it up. Even Prime Minister Abe a couple of days ago said we have to do much better on that. Uh, and then on R&D and vaccines and things like that, they are pushing uh, some, I uh, call it national champions on this, um, but we have not uh, seen much movement in terms of reducing the legal risk of institutions that treat patients, things like that. So overall, I'd sort of give it a, a, a B. Now, what about the, the future? Uh, COVID itself is not the problem. <laughs> the problem for the future of the Japanese economy is productivity growth. And here, I have one little chart to sort of illustrate things. If you look at this left-hand side, you see output equals output per worker times number of workers. GDP is actually up a, a fair amount since uh, the start of Abenomics. Uh, but if you look at the productivity in terms of output per worker, it's hardly moved at all. So basically, we've had a lot of new workers come into the economy. This uh, uh, comes from womenomics, uh, from some other changes of the rules, and that's a great thing. But productivity has not been driving the economy since the start of uh, abenomics. It's been increased labor. Okay? Uh, now, why is uh, labor productivity um, uh, stagnant? Um, basically, uh, it's because uh, of the two offsetting factors. Productivity per hour, the black line here, has actually done quite well. Um, not as well as it needs to do, but it's done okay. In contrast, the L, uh, H over L part, the hours per worker has been going straight down because there's so many more part-timers in the economy. Um, so basically we have a more efficient use of time, but less time going in. Uh, it's gonna be hard to support the economy uh, if higher output per hour is offset by people working less and less and less. So we need to uh, make sure that we're pushing that output per hour as high as we possibly can. This comes down to innovation. Uh, and this is one area where I think GPS has done a wonderful job uh, in pushing forward our knowledge of how innovation works. What I've done here is use some of my work from uh, Tokyo University of Science just to compare uh, what innovation looked like, say, 30 years ago and what it looks like today. Basically, because of high information and search costs, there was a linear model of how innovation worked, uh, from education to science to engineering to invention to entrepreneurship to business, finally, to GDP. Now, because of this lowered information barriers, all of the elements can talk to each other all of the time. And this has been immensely helpful during the COVID crisis because scientists from all around the world are sharing their results much more actively, much more aggressively, so that we can speed up uh, the development of new vaccines. This is the new uh, model uh, for how innovation works. What about Japan? Is Japan moving to this innovation model uh, as fast as uh, it should be? And the answer is, well, probably not. Particularly the policy coordination is what I'm worried about. Uh, what I've done on this final slide here is to look at the 15 major committees or commissions rather in the government. And as of spring last year, uh, I looked at the who's on the different committees to look for overlap. That is, are people talking to each other? Okay. There are 295 individuals uh, on those 15 committees at that time. Only 14 of them served on more than one. And my 
perfect example of the problem here is that there's an industrial structure commission uh, in the Ministry of Trade and Industry, 30 people on it. And I look for the overlap between that industrial structure commission and the science and technology commission in the Ministry of Education. The overlap is zero. Okay. So if policy is being made in silos, you're not going to get the coordination effects that are necessary uh, to have the uh, speed of innovation that Japan will need to go back and raise that rate of innovation. Uh, so that's where I want to leave my uh, remarks now. Uh, and uh, we can go back uh, to uh, the, um, uh, to the uh, uh, comments of my fellow panelists. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Robbie. There's a great tour de force. Uh, everything you need to know and need to think about if you want to understand uh, where we stand. So, Takeo, uh, let me turn to you and ask for your comments. Uh, where Where's the economy going? Okay, thank you, Ulrika. Uh, it's uh, nice to be back at UCSD, although it's, uh, it's only virtually. And also, um, when I left, it used to be, it, it was called IRPS instead of GPS. Um, but this panel discussion reminds me of uh, something we did uh, almost exactly nine years ago. Uh, there was a panel discussion like this in, in a Robinson Auditorium, which I assume still exists, right? Um, and uh, the topic then was a post-311 Japanese economy. And the topic today is a post-COVID-19 uh, COVID uh, Japanese economy. So, uh, and there are some similarities. So it reminded me of uh, what we did uh, nine years ago. So let me uh, share the screen uh, with my slides, the slides I prepared. So I tried to look for the announcement or the website for that seminar uh, nine years ago, which I couldn't. Um, this was the best I could do. Uh, th this is a notice of the event that I was able to find in a UCSD newsletter. And uh, this shows uh, what we did uh, nine years ago. Um, so this was a, a panel discussion moderated by Professor Krauss, uh, who I, I guess has retired now. Uh, and both Ulika and I were on, on the panel. And the situation was, in a sense, very similar to today. The economy had just got hit by a huge shock, and we, we were wondering uh, what will happen now. Uh, where is the economy heading? So, and this is what I said uh, nine years ago. So this is the argument I made. I literally lifted these remarks from my slide, so it doesn't fit today, but this, this is exactly what I said. Um, so in, this, in the short run, output declines. As, uh, as, as uh, Robbie mentioned, this is what we expect to happen this time. Um, but in the long run, uh, in the short run, output decline, but in the long run, I claimed that the uh, situation can be actually better. Uh, Japan could shift on to a higher economic growth path or worse. Uh, Japan can stagnate for a long time. And I argue it depends on policy choice. And so, so this kind of echoes uh, what a uh, part of uh, what Robert, Rob, Robbie mentioned uh, in his slide. Um, so the problem then was, so, so the Robbie mentioned COVID is not a problem for Japan from an economic growth point of view. Productivity growth or slow productivity growth is. And that was exactly the situation nine years ago as well. Earthquake wasn't so much a problem, but the productivity growth, which was low uh, even before the earthquake was. And depending on what happens to the productivity growth, uh, Japan could have gone on to a higher economic growth path or lower economic growth path. Now, what happened after the earthquake? Um, probably judging from uh, what uh, Robbie mentioned, uh, Japan's adjustment after the earthquake wasn't that great from productivity growth point of view. The Japan still suffers from low productivity growth. Uh, I haven't done a careful study, so I can't say now, but uh, I have found an interesting paper, uh, which is not about Japan, uh, but 
on Italy. This paper uh, by uh, Baron and uh, Mossetti compare two earthquakes, two episodes of earthquakes in Italy that happened in 1980s, and then judge, then, then compare in those, for those two cities what happened to the economic growth after the earthquake shock. So the two uh, cities, uh, one is called, I guess, uh, Friuli, and the other one is uh, Arpinia. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing those correctly. Uh, Friuli, they experienced the earthquake in 1976, and Arpinia, 1980. So these two graphs shows what happened to the uh, what happened to the growth of these uh, two two economies after these. Uh, so let me use a laser pointer here. So this is a point of uh, earthquake for Friuli, and the other one is Arpinia. Uh, the earthquake happened in 1980. Then the solid line shows uh, what happened to the growth since then. And the dotted line shows the counterfactual that they create by combining other similar cities. So compared with the combination of other similar cities uh, called the synthetic, uh, Friuli did quite well. And the Opinia did worse than it would have would have done if the earthquake didn't happen. So this shows that two very different outcomes following the earthquake, and um, um, which, which is very similar to what I claimed uh, nine years ago. The economy can be can shift to a higher economic growth path, or can shift to a lower economic growth path. And uh, what distinguishes these two cases? That's a very important and interesting question, and I uh, invite you to read these papers. But basically, the Friuli, uh, after the earthquake, success successfully changed their economic structure and increased the productivity growth. The TFP growth was quite high. And what happened in Orpinia is uh, more uh, political, uh, political scandals and corruptions and wasted the opportunity to change. So um, obviously, we are not looking at earthquake today or a tsunami or a nuclear disaster even. But my message today is basically the same. Uh, in, in our argument today is basically the same. In the short run, the economy declines after the disaster. Um, so in that sense, this doesn't matter, pandemic or uh, earthquake. Um, well, uh, actually, it matters. Uh, one, one difference uh, between pandemic and the earthquake is in both cases, the recession happens. But in pandemic, the recession is a feature, uh, not a bug. Uh, because uh, we need economic recession. We need uh, shrinkage of the economic activities to reduce the speed of the, uh, speed of, of the flu spread to, to the economy uh, or flatten the curve, so to speak. So using the terminology uh, Robbie mentioned, so we need to reduce all opportunities uh, for the, the virus to spread and the recession does that. So that's a feature. Um, and in the long run, uh, similar, uh, again, I would expect the similar thing uh, for the after the pandemic. Uh, it's possible for the economy to reach better growth paths if the economy can use uh, these disasters as a trigger to change the economic system and uh, change the economic institutions to increase the productivity growth. Uh, one, one of the lines possible is uh, what uh, Ravi implied in his talk. Or the economy can reach uh, worse economic growth paths and continue to struggle. Okay. And um, we don't know which happens, and that probably depends on the policy choices, and uh, so that's something the Japanese people get to choose. But, but I want to point out, I want to f 
finish my portion of uh, the speech to, by pointing out some promising changes in Japan that we are already seeing. Um, in Japan, people have been talking about uh, hataraki-kata kaikaku or uh, uh, work style reform and uh, digital transformation and so on uh, with little progress or, or less progress than we would have wanted. But I think what's, hap what's happening now is that those uh, economic reforms that the people wanted are now going forward. Um, now many companies are forced to change and, uh, and many companies uh, started to do uh, remote working. Uh, some companies like uh, Duango and uh, Chubu Gas have already announced that they will continue the practice of uh, remote working even after the COVID-19 crisis subsides. So, um, and, and also I don't have to point out, uh, but uh, we have already moved to the world where online conference like this is a norm. Uh, we've been teaching online courses at the University of Tokyo uh, since uh, the beginning of the April as well. Uh, E-commerce and delivery services will permanently increase their shares. Uh, we have started to see some regulatory changes um, which would uh, create, which would stimulate economic growth. And also, uh, I, I will stop here, but uh, also I want to po point out the possibility that uh, we are also realizing the value of what we used to take for granted during this uh, self-restraint period, uh, such as a quality of services in restaurants in Japan. Uh, the problem for Japan was that those restaurants have a high level of services, but they couldn't get, uh, they couldn't get to convince the people to pay for those services. And, but now we realize those values, certainly uh, at least I value those now uh, much more than before. So it may increase profitability in the future for those industries as well. So people talk about omotenashi in Japan, but the omotenashi, the problem of omotenashi was it didn't earn money. And now we may be able to move into the economy where omotenashi can be actually profitable. So let me uh, stop here and I look forward to the discussion. Uh, thank you, Takeo, if you could unshare, that's great. So let's begin the discussion. We have some uh, Q&A already, uh, but I'm gonna take the prerogative of the host here and, uh, and ask you a, a first question, if I may. You made a lot of, uh, out of, you know, talked a lot about productivity growth and reflecting that you are MIT trained at PhDs in economics. And so you're upholding sort of, uh, you know, what you, what your, you know, the important aspects of your profession. Let me ask, let me challenge you a little bit on that. So productivity per worker, um, in Japan is lower, let me just stipulate this as a sentence and you can push, push back on this, because Japan has overemployment, not because people don't do anything when they go to work, but because there is a strong preference in society uh, to not be unemployed. And it also includes, of course, a large portion of um, uh, these productivity measures of small companies, whether that's a tatami maker or a little noodle stand somewhere or, 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 or companies that if you were just a hard-nosed economist would say those are zombies and they should be closed down. But in the Japanese setting are kept alive, whether that's through loan programs or through whatever, um, in lieu of giving these people unemployment benefits, let them go to work, let them open their store. So a large portion of at least the service sector is a sort of a, a quasi social welfare sector. So that if we wanted to measure productivity, just in terms of being interested in how, how well Japanese workers work, we should divide the economy into these two separate portions. Um, the, the, and so that's one question. The second question is uh, the pricing thing that Takeo brought up. I, I've always been under the impression that 
a lot of the price setting in Japan is still sort of bound by long-term trade relations and can we raise the price and how much can we charge? And that too would affect the productivity measure, right? Because uh, presumably we, we're measuring productivity in yen produced per person, right? The revenues or something. So can you sh highlight a little bit more why, uh, you know, why you're so concerned with productivity and why I might be wrong in making up all of these uh, excuses, if you wish, for why maybe we shouldn't look at productivity in the same way. Uh, Robbie, you want to start since you be began? Yes, go for it. Yeah. So I started this fight, so I'll have to uh, take the next step. Um, uh, we can't hear you. Can you speak up a little bit or a microphone? Sorry, okay, I have to lower, yeah. lower the microphone now. Um, the um, uh, first issue I think uh, really has to do with productivity has to do about the future of the economy. We have this aging society. And what aging society means is yes, population will go down, uh, but the working age population will go down even more. Uh, so the uh, fewer and fewer remaining workers will have to produce more and more each in order to main any, uh, maintain any kind of, uh, call it, um, a uh, reasonable social security system. Okay? Now, of course, you could have people working longer, which they are beginning to do, uh, but the over 75 group begins to grow very, very quickly after 2023. And that means uh, that uh, the people uh, in the lower age groups are gonna have to be more and more and more and more productive in order uh, to maintain any kind of um, uh, called reasonable um, uh, living standard uh, for the economy as a whole. Okay, so that means the productivity uh, for the younger folks basically is the uh, sine qua non of maintaining social peace in the country. Now, I think one thing you're getting at is we maintain social peace by having a lot of called hidden unemployment. Uh, the economy as whole sort of taxed itself to keep these guys employed. Uh, but once they're retired over 75, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that's not going to be uh, possible anymore. And so we have to raise productivity, particularly for the younger folks, uh, in order to maintain any kind of social uh, cohesion. Okay? Now, how do we do that? Uh, there are a couple things that I think uh, need to be uh, focused on. But one of them, uh, which I would push uh, uh, most, is R&D. Uh, the amount of spending on R&D in Japan as a whole is pretty high relative to other countries. However, uh, looking at OECD, OECD statistics, uh, it's a little bit skewed in favor of corporates away from other things. The other thing that I think is very important is not just the spending on R&D, but it's not R&D, it's R-D and D, that is research, uh, development, and diffusion. Uh, that is, the diffusion of technologies in Japan has been a little slower than it, than it should be. Uh, so that's a part of it. The other thing you mentioned pricing, which I think is very, very important on this, uh, which is I still think that uh, prices in Japan are uh, uh, adversely impacted, that is kept higher than they should be uh, by a lot of uh, call it monopolistic practices or regulatory practices. Uh, one of the reason, reasons that uh, the regional economies uh, are uh, not in such good shape uh, is that it's expensive to live in the regions. There's some wonderful uh, data uh, from uh, various ministries put it together that show that um, yes, wages, uh, excuse me, yes, prices are lower in the regions, uh, but they're not as low as wages are, which means that it's expensive to live outside of Tokyo. So people keep coming to Tokyo. And if you look at the, uh, the population trends, what you see is that uh, compared with the US, for example, uh, the uh, concentration of population in old population centers is higher uh, and less uh, mobile than it is in the United States. So I, if anything, I would think uh, more aggressive deregulation would help us on the price front, help us in diffusing, in diffusing technology and get uh, the, uh, the population a little better educated as well uh, to use the IT a little more effectively. Uh, and so that would raise the productivity and help maintain social peace. So that's the, uh, the approach that I'm taking. So before I turn to Takeo, let me just yeah. give you a little bit of pushback. I mean, if you brought up the aging society. And so if my story mm -hmm. is right, that a lot of the mm -hmm. low productivity numbers is due to these old mom and pop stores that are mm -hmm. artificially mm -hmm. uh, kept alive to save everybody's face and have mm -hmm. people employed, mm -hmm. they will also go away. Mm -hmm. So right? there could so be the a... the numbers uh, could yeah. go better just through attrition. Mm -hmm. I hope that's true, but there are a lot of large firms that aren't particularly productive either. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Takeo, let's see what you what you have to uh, 
add to that. Okay, on prices, uh, I think I disagree with Robbie, but I'd like to uh, look at more data there. Um, and in any event, I don't think the price, low price, uh, influences the productivity because we look at uh, we, we, we look at uh, real productivity levels so we use a price index to calculate the real output and divide that by input so um, I, I don't think that's an issue for productivity uh, the price is issue for something else too um, but uh, low productivity the problem of the low, low productivity uh, or the zombie forms as, as you, you mentioned um, so th there is a advantage of uh, keeping zombies in, uh, in that it provides more uh, jobs for, for, for some people to protect the employment. And that has been the policy choice of the Japanese government for a long time. So, so that's, uh, that, that was a policy to uh, keep the cost of uh, changes for, for many people. But the cost of doing that was a low productivity growth. If you can, uh, and, and uh, I, I think there is a better way for uh, make many people who lose a job today to move on to another jobs. The problem of protecting zombies is as uh, my, my research has been uh, suggesting that by keeping those human resources into uh, unproductive companies, uh, including the large ones, uh, but many small ones, um, that it prevents other small companies or new companies, more productive companies to come into the economy or more productive companies to expand so that they can absorb some of the human, re human resources or human capital which could be uh, released by these zombie companies. Mm -hmm. So as long as, so, so, so I, I don't think the uh, Japanese policy or the, the main Japanese policy of uh, protecting those employment uh, has been very successful in that sense. And exact, low productivity is exactly the result of those policies, as you mentioned. And those policies are not efficient policy. And I think we, can, or Japan can do better. If I may, let me bring up one other thing, a very interesting piece of research that I saw out of the uh, MIT Media Lab. Uh, a guy named uh, Alex Pentland has written a book called Social Physics. Uh, and it's about uh, how um, uh, sort of productivity in teams works. He's an, a, um, a big data guy. Uh, and he's got some very interesting numerical work about how uh, the intensity of communication within a team uh, is, in his view, extraordinarily important, rather than the individual talents of the, of the members. But the communication structure within the team is extraordinarily important in generating productivity. And actually, it was his work that triggered my uh, little chart uh, on, that I showed on the, uh, the different committees. And what I'm uh, asserting here is that the Japanese employment system, by keeping people in individual companies, that is the lifetime employment system, actually lowers the ability of the economy to transmit information uh, and therefore raise uh, overall productivity. So that's the, the, the uh, approach that I'm taking to this. So uh, let me turn to some of the questions that we're getting from our audience. Um, there are a number the, uh, that I'm going to combine and uh, shape them a little bit, if I may. Um, uh, Takashi Kobanawa, our, our alum in, in Tokyo, was asking uh, whether you expect any changes in global competitiveness out of Japan. And so let me couch this in some of the other comments we're getting. Takeo, you've been talking about the pandemic, the current pandemic, as an as an exogenous shock to the economy, and what can we predict, similar to an earthquake? And there are some questions around whether that's the right way of thinking, and if you could explain why that is, um, or uh, reframe it in, in in terms of Takashi's question: the, is is the trajectory that the Japanese economy going to take after after COVID nineteen similar to other exogenous shocks? whether that's an earthquake or something, um, or is there something different this time about this being a pandemic rather than an earthquake 
um, or a war or a, a trade war or whatever. Is, this, is, is there something different around this or can we just think of this as an exogenous shock that has happened that is over? It's not over, right? Uh, so so how, can you guide our, our thinking around how to assess competitiveness and in, in the future and trade and, and, and the nature of the pandemic? So, so I guess here we are talking about the competitiveness in terms of international competitiveness and uh, that may matter for uh, export or net export. Um, so both of you actually mentioned that Japan is an export-oriented economy, which is not true in the sense that the Japan, Japanese economy depends on export and import in terms of the level of GDP. The proportion of the trade in the level of GDP in Japan is probably as large as the U.S., much smaller than South Korea or Germany and the many European countries. The problem for Japan was rather a dependence on export in economic growth. Yes. So even though the level in the level of Japanese economy doesn't depend so much on export, but the growth comes from the, mostly from uh, export. And that has been a problem for the Japanese economy. Mm -hmm. And if uh, there's a COVID uh, incident, or if, if this crisis makes uh, Japanese economy more domestic or depend on more internal demand, uh, that may be actually a good change. May I? Please. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I want to echo uh, what uh, Takeo has just said. Uh, it is the increment uh, to GDP coming from exports that's the most important thing, what we call a, a high beta economy. But going back to Ulrika's questions, there are two things on competitiveness and the, the kind of shock. Um, if you want to know about uh, the uh, true mechanism of competitiveness in the Japanese economy, uh, the book you have to read is Ulrika's new book, uh, which uh, just uh, came out. It's extremely good. Uh, and it gets a lot of information about how Japanese companies in a very quiet uh, way have really done a great job in improving their global competitiveness. So it's a, certainly an important thing uh, to, to take a look at. Um, in terms of the, the, the shocks, um, I like to separate shocks into shocks to the supply curve and shocks to the demand curve, which are very different kinds of shocks. Uh, 1973 was a shock to the supply curve, oil. Okay? And in that case, uh, it took five years uh, for uh, business investment in Japan uh, to return to its level prior to the, uh, the first oil shock. Okay? The technology wasn't good enough at the time uh, to start investing very quickly uh, to uh, create cheaper energy infrastructure, so it took a very long time. Contrast that uh, situation with, say, the uh, 2008 uh, financial shock or the 1997 uh, financial shock. Those were both basically demand shocks. And uh, yes, they were deep and they were serious, but uh, business investment came back relatively quickly uh, compared to a supply shock. So then you get to the question, is this COVID a supply shock or a demand shock? Well, it's both. But initially, my view is it's a supply shock that then caused a demand shock. And it's the speed of demand recovery that's going to be uh, crucial uh, to how the final, uh, uh, final uh, uh, result uh, comes out. That said, uh, in certain senses, it's very different from 1973 because we've got the technology available now uh, to um, start investing very quickly again. This Zoom conference being a, a perfect example of that. So I'm not as pessimistic as, say, the 1973 shock because of the nature of technology uh, that we have going in uh, to this particular uh, issue. So in that sense, this is similar to earthquake, which was a supply shock. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I think that addresses a number of questions that we got. Why would you want to talk about an earthquake when we're talking about a pandemic? There is, of course, the uncertainty going forward, but that mm -hmm. would also be true for an earthquake, right? Because there will always be another earthquake, I guess. Uh, we have a, a few questions that uh, that are about... Uh, whether this particular moment in time will change traject trajectories as they pertain to immigration, tourism, the role of women. So there's this, there's this old adage, never let a good crisis go to waste. And we hear a lot about how this sudden shift to telework actually um, maybe an opportunity to push the hataraki katakaikaku, the, the work style reforms, forward because there's no more 
uh, dilly-dallying around, people are now doing telework. But, but what does this really mean? I mean, is this going to set women back or is this going to put women forward? Um, is this, you know, are we going to uh, see less immigration because we're now worried about the thing or more immigration because mm -hmm. uh, we need more workers? So can you kind of look a little bit at the crystal ball, whatever your favorite uh, topic of, of these topics is and, and, and lay out a scenario of how this might go? Takia, may I call on you first? You had the yeah, handle in your so, slide, so. so um, I don't have a crystal ball. Or actually, I have two crystal balls. The one and the other tells, tells me uh, two different things. Right? So, so all of those have uh, different possibilities. And I think what happens depends on uh, the choice that we make. Um, so also, you, you, you've been... Uh, you, you, you've been trying to let, let me say the earthquake and pandemic are different and they are different, especially the earthquake uh, nine years ago is obviously different from uh, today's pandemic. And I think one important difference that uh, we, we need to think about here is earthquake was just about Japan or just about Tohoku, but now the pandemic is uh, influencing all over the world. So in that sense, the nine years ago, it was a, Japan's opportunity to change. Now I, I think uh, we, the world has an opportunity to, to change. And if we go back, say, uh, 30 years now, the, I think many economies have failed to respond to many changes like technological progress, uh, globalization, things like that. I talked about the Japan's response of protecting zombie farms didn't go well. Uh, the U.S. response, which was more free market type of things, didn't go well either. And if, uh, you know, if we can come up with a better way to adjust to the changes through this crisis, uh, the world will be a better place. Robbie, do you, uh, what's your vision there? I mean, is, is Japan going to grab, grab this opportunity and, and really do something with it? Or or I mean, you you're negative on the on the policy committees and the mm -hmm. you know the the information exchange, but mm -hmm. but Japan is very slowly and quietly mm -hmm. making some policy changes. So, for instance, immigration. Mm -hmm. um, there is a yes, Japan started from zero, so the absolute numbers may not look that high. But if you look at the trend, it mm -hmm. actually had started before all this happened. That was a a a, a pretty um steady increase in immigration and and, and 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 the addition of new workers and so forth is, mm -hmm. is are these things going to be derailed or or what's the what's the well, labor force aspect here it's a very interesting question because we have the technology change which is actually replacing a labor in particular it's replacing some immigrant labor as well i go to the convenience store now um, and there are a lot of um, uh, electronic checkout places that never used to be there. Um, this is just in the last year and a half or so. Uh, and the type of labor that they're replacing is actually, to a certain extent, immigrant labor. Uh, you used to go to the convenience stores and, you know, half the people, at least behind the counters, at least in Tokyo, uh, were these kids coming in from Asia. Uh, I went to one once. Um, I couldn't quite understand what uh, the, the young woman was saying. And so she started talking to me in English. She's a young Chinese girl who is, uh, you know, trilingual, and she's working at a convenience store in Tokyo. Now that they have those machines, that sort of worker is a little bit less necessary, okay? So in that sense, the technology and the telework uh, sort of stuff will reduce the need for labor, but it's not necessarily discriminatory against immigrant labor or any other kind of labor, it's just labor as a whole. Um, that said, I also think uh, that uh, one of the things this technology does is it levels the playing field uh, uh, in uh, gender uh, discrimination uh, issues uh, quite substantially because um, what matters is talent uh, and uh, ability to use new technology uh, is not something that has any particular uh, gender aspects uh, to it. Um, so uh, I actually think that uh, the, the increased importance of technological sophistication is going to be a, a leveler uh, uh, in uh, the issues of uh, gender discrimination. That's that's uh, really interesting, uh, and and that also will a little bit depend on how we're going to open up, what's going to happen in schools, and 
whether maybe this telework is actually something that make men think twice about what they really want and whether this whole communication and going, you know, working late hours and so forth is, is really something that they want to return to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, uh, that's not so much a policy issue, but a negotiation with the employers. Yes. Right? And with and the, the family. Are fighting for talent. And so they can't really say no if the employees say, we don't want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. some of this is already happening a little bit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some all people... The, all the please. communication can be done through Zoom as well. Yes. All right. Let's have a quarantine. Um, before we do that, we can do one more question. Last question comes from Hiroki Takeuchi, our colleague at SMU. He wants to know a little bit more about um, should the government rescue companies um, in one way or wherever, whether it's a loan program or a subsidy or whatever. And um, um, Takeo, I think you heard you say that that the government should rescue big companies, but maybe not small ones, or is that right? And also how you mentioned the local restaurant and the omotenashi and can we pay more? How would that, how could we save the, the social cohesion and the restaurants? And, and is there anything particularly about Japan that, that would work well as you were talking about it? I think we, we, we are in a crisis. So as long as we are in, in a crisis, uh, we should help many companies and many workers so that they can tide over the crisis. But at the same time, as I said, we are expecting the economic system to change, economic structure to change in the near future. So we shouldn't try to protect the companies which will be you know, out of date soon. So that's uh, that's some, something the government should be very careful not to basically not to save uh, unviable companies, and for for those, uh, some companies may be able to survive with uh, restructuring, under court or not, and um, so any policies to make it easier to restructure, make it easier to change, should be encouraged. Any policies that to prevent the necessary changes uh, should be discouraged. So that should be the general rule. I agree in general with uh, uh, what uh, Takeo has said on this. One other thing that I think is quite interesting now is that the role of local governments in dealing with the crisis here in Japan has been quite, quite interesting. And uh, the notion that uh, local governments uh, can take individual initiatives to do things, uh, I think has been uh, given a a great deal of uh, uh, credibility here. Uh, Governor Kuika's actions in saying, no, we've got to stay home now, before uh, Prime Minister Abe declared the national emergency. That I think was a huge, huge step forward. And my observation, uh, maybe the political scientists can help us uh, understand this better, but my observation is that uh, the higher you go up in toward the national government, the more socialist uh, things uh, become. The more you get to the local level, uh, the more, uh, call it, um, uh, capitalist things become. So when the local governments are making decisions, they have to pay for stuff themselves. Uh, They ask the central government for money. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't come. Uh, But basically, if you have to make decisions, you're responsible for uh, the uh, physical part of it. Uh, And so the decisions become a little more uh, market oriented. Uh, So it really comes down to what the voters uh, vote for. But if the central government maintains its control over the locals by giving them a lot of money and say, here, do this, then that basically uh, sort of interdicts uh, the uh, local autonomy uh, and the ability of uh, individual uh, prefectures to make decisions on their own, which I think would probably be bad for growth. This is a point actually made uh, uh, early on by uh, none less than Edwin Reischauer, who uh, said that uh, one of the reasons that Japan uh, developed earlier than other Asian countries was the strong local autonomy uh, that was inherent in the, uh, uh, the Edo period uh, economic system. And if we're seeing a little bit more of that uh, come forward as a result of what Governor Kuika and other governors have done, uh, then I think that would be a good thing for the country. Uh, that's a super interesting topic. We had this come up uh, uh, 10 days ago with, with Umori-san from MRI, who was here uh, as a guest. 
And he said something very similar, that the re regional revitalization may actually be a new thing after we're done with this. You know, whether that's, you know, wage and price structures, as you said earlier, but or also just people wanting to be out of Tokyo and live in less crowded places, um, or whether it's the political pull that the regions actually figure out what to do uh, while the while the central government can't. Those are all super thing, interesting topics that are- A key thing on that is the transportation system, which is so heavily oriented toward Tokyo that it is a long, long way uh, to get out to the regions. And if you want to go from region A to region B, you got to go through one of the centers. This doesn't work for yes. regional revitalization. That's another- no, there, there, could be, there could be a lot of smart, smart city work to be done. Mm -hmm. Well, gentlemen, um, thank you very much. We're out of time. Uh, before we leave, let me just uh, bring my slide back up and remind our audience that we will be back next week. Uh, we have uh, uh, our own uh, Dr. Kiyoizumi, who is a Tech Coast angel, which means he's an angel investor. Um, and he'll talk about what the Tech Coast angels do to help startup companies in California survive this crisis. He'll be joined by Yuichiro Yoshinari, who is the director of MLab, which is a, an open innovation lab in Silicon Valley uh, that is run by Mitsubishi Corp Americas. Uh, so I hope we'll see you all uh, next week at uh, the same time and uh, take good care and stay healthy. Thank you very much and bye-bye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.